1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll look at the whole text together, the whole chapter. Corinthians chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body I am present in spirit and as if present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not of the old leaven, the leaven of malice and, and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's a reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, I realize and we realize, even as we just read this text, that this is a difficult chapter to read and to understand and even more difficult to do and to practice. But Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves this afternoon and build our church not according to our standards and our ideas and our inventions, Lord, but build it upon your wisdom and your word, for that is the rock that will carry us through. So Lord, please teach us and humble us and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Lord, we are considering church foundations, which are those truths that are most necessary for us as a church to function as a healthy church. And the text we have just read is another one of those key truths, which no doubt is extremely rare in many, many churches today. We're looking at the second D this afternoon. The first D we looked at was in Galatians 6 called discipleship. In other words, that we are to look out after one another, we have to carry each other's burdens, we have to be part of one another's lives, especially if someone is caught in a sin and a transgression, we have to restore that person. But this afternoon, we're going to consider the second, namely discipline. Discipline. In order for the church to be healthy, we need to practice what we call church discipline. Now, some of you might know this, some of you might not know this. Last year in Clagsdorp, I went through our very first church discipline case in that church, and even for me as a pastor. And, and I can say without a doubt that it was probably the most painful thing I ever had to endure in my life. And probably for many of the Christians in Clagstorp as well, where it was painful, there was much confusion, there was much doubt, there was much pushback. You see, like it's, it's easy to study it and to read it and to know it. And then the moment we put a face on the person that we have to deliver over to Satan, 
it suddenly becomes difficult and scary, but, and you can understand why. But that's why I want to preach this sermon and this text in our peacetime, because thank God, Heritage Baptist Church is in a, is in a good, good space, right? We, we, had, we had a good, it's going well with the church, but it's not a matter of if we will do church discipline, but when we will do church discipline. And then when we will need to do it, we will need to have these type of texts in our minds and in our hearts so that we won't shrink back in fear, but that we would be obedient to the Lord. So I really want us to be prepared for that. I want the Lord wants us to be faithful and to see that this is not a, a Baptist principle. This is not a Pastor Rian idea. This is the Lord's plan for his church. And 1 Corinthians 5 is a key chapter. Now, I want to ask you, even as we just read it, did you even know this chapter existed in the Bible? Because I think so many people, by just reading this passage, like, wait, that cannot be the Bible, right? Just look at verse 4 and 5 again. It says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. Look at verses 12 to 13. It says, For what have I to do of judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? That's why the title of the sermon is, Judge One Another, because it comes from verse 12. We have nothing to do with judging the world, but those within the church, we are called by God to judge. Now, not unrighteously, not hypocritically, but lovingly, humbly. Now, before we go any further, let me just give you this very basic reminder. The same Bible that says, judge not, lest you be judged, says, judge one another. The same Bible that says, love must cover a multitude of sins, says, we are to deliver someone over to Satan if the person is unrepentant. Do you have room in your theology for that? Do you know how to reconcile those texts with one another? Because we believe the entire scriptures are inspired by God. And since it has one author and God can never lie, these are not contradictions, but rather they fit together in a way. And beloved, let me tell you this. This is what the Bible will often do to you. As you read it, you will come across verses and passages and scriptures that will just not seem right to you it will just not sit well with you no this cannot be right this is not what the bible how could the bible say this and in those moments when we have those texts in front of us we have a crucial decision to make we are we're standing at a crossroad either will you decide to deny reject or twist the bible so that it fits with the god of your imagination so that it fits with the god you have created that you are comfortable with or will you submit to the living God, to the only true God of Scripture as He has revealed Himself, even if He makes you feel uncomfortable, even if He says something about Himself or says something we are to do that we don't like? Are we going to change into His image? That's our choice. And do you agree? I hope you agree that chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is one of those chapters where we will have to take this crossroad. Either we're going to reject it and stick with the God that we're comfortable with, or we say, this is the God of Scripture, and we have to bend our knees under Him. 1 Corinthians 5 reflects the mind of God who is holy, of God who is love, 
of God that is consistent with all of his attributes and his character. This is who this God is. Now, just to give you a little bit of a background, remember what is interesting about this text is that it shows the exact opposite extreme of the problem we saw in Galatians. So in Galatians, what was the problem? The church was self-righteous. The church was legalistic. The church made up man-made rules. And therefore, when another Christian was sinning, they were harsh. They were judgmental. They came, they came down upon people as a ton of bricks. And they did not want to carry one another's burdens because I'm not going to waste my time with people who struggle with sin. That's Galatians. In 1 Corinthians 5, it's exactly the opposite problem. Now there's sin in the church and the church doesn't do anything. The church is so gracious, they don't put people out of the church. They say, no, we, we are a church of grace. We are a church that believes in the gospel of grace. So we're not going to judge anyone. Sexual immorality is allowed. And both of those are, are wrong. Both of those are false gospels. That will be deadly for the life of the church. That will be deadly for our church. So let me clarify the, the main difference between what was happening in Galatia and what was happening in Corinth. In Galatians 6, the context is someone who is caught in a sin and in a transgression, but wants to stop doing it. It's someone that is repentant, brokenhearted, hates the sin that they do over and over again and needs help. They don't need church discipline. That brother or sister needs grace, needs us to come along with them and carry their burden. Help them to overcome that sin, right? In 1 Corinthians 5, the situation is someone is living in sin and they are proud of it. They brag about it. This person lives in open rebellion against God, against his word and what he thinks. And he says, it's okay. Because I'm saved by grace and not by works. So do you see the main, do you see the main difference between Galatians and, and Corinthians? In short, Galatians, the person is repentant, and the person in Corinth is unrepentant. That's the main difference between these two people. So we can summarize our text in four parts, and we're going to first look at what was the act. There was a, an act which has called Paul to write this heavy chapter for the church to do. Look at the act, what this man did in verse 1. He says, It is actually reported... That there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So this man was living together with his stepmother. And we know that's his stepmother because otherwise Paul would have said his mother. But he says, no, not his mother, his father's wife. As a way to make that clear that this is his, his, um, his stepmother. And what makes the sin so especially gross is that it wasn't even a sin that the world did. It was a sin that even the pagans frowned upon. So in other words, the church in Corinth was out sinning the world. Right? Even pagans had a higher sexual standard and a higher marriage standard than this man had in the church. So this man is living in open, public, gross, unrepentant sin. And so that was the act. So what is... Something like that require of the church. What is the action? What is the action required by God for such open public unrepentance? And that's our second point. What is the action God requires? Well, over and over again, we see what we ought to do, right? Verse 2, look at verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this 
be removed from among you. Look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be unleavened as you really are. Look at verse 11. It says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of these sins. He says at the end, not even to eat with such a one. Do you see the point? The church must act swiftly. The church must remove this person, deliver this man over to Satan, and cleanse out the old leaven from among them, from their fellowship, from their church. A word that really describes this well is the word excommunication. Now some, some don't like that word because of its close ties to the Roman Catholic Church, but I like the word because it actually describes well what we ought to do. Excommunication is excommunion. Excommunication. There's a definite break in associating with that person. That person is not allowed to just freely associate with us. There's a definite break. Person is removed. Of course, we, if, you, if the person we're disciplining is a family member, so sometimes it might happen we have to discipline a husband or a discipline a wife and... The, the marriage partner is still in the church or someone's child or we might have to do that and of course then in that case that doesn't mean you should break all ties with that person because you still have family obligations right if you're a husband you always have to love your wife you always have to submit to your husband if you're a wife so if your family member is being disciplined then surely we should still keep contact with that person but there's a definite break in the casual relationship you have with that person, the casual conversations you had, the casual way to deal with that person as if this person is not sinning. But just to be clear, this does not just apply to those gross, public, scandalous sins. Why? Because Paul clarifies in verse 11 that this applies to a broad range of sins. Look at verse 11. He says, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Think, just stop there. We should put people out of the church for greed, for covetousness. The person that never wants to share, the person that never gives, the person that cannot practice hospitality, the person that is constantly making debt because he always wants more and more and more, the greedy person. We are to put that person out of the church? Yes. That's what the text says, right? Look at the rest of the sins. He says, Or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one? Now, Tim Conway preached a sermon on this text. and He made a few very helpful observations that I want to share with you as well. And first observation is, this Greek verb that says, whoever bears the name of brother, is in a passive tense. In other words, this is not something that other people call him. This is something, oh sorry, this is not something he calls himself, right? This is something other people call him. In other words, he bears the name of brother. Other people see this person as a Christian, as a brother and sister. So in other words, the person that walks into our doors and we would greet that person as brother or sister. These are the kind of people Paul is talking about. Paul is not thinking of those people that calls themselves Christians, but they, nobody else would ever think of them as a Christian, right? 
If they didn't mention that they're a Christian, nobody would call them brother. Nobody would call them sister. This is not the kind of people we are to discipline. This is rather those among us, those who are church members who have committed themselves to us, that if they walk in the door, we say, brother, they bear the name. They have the reputation of a Christian by other people. Those are the people we are to distance ourselves, disassociate ourselves from. And when should the church do this? When does that line come when we say, now you've crossed the line. Now we need to do church discipline. Now, unfortunately, the ESV doesn't do a good job with the translation of verse 11. Because it says, if anyone is guilty of sexual immorality. Now, that makes it sound like if you have just done this sin one time, if you are guilty of sexual immor immorality or greed, you're out. How many of us would be left here? I wouldn't be preaching. We all would be out. Okay, So this is not saying... If you do this sin once, you're out. This is church discipline. Rather, that's Galatians 6. Carry one another's burdens, right? But the Greek is super clear. Guilty is not found in the original. The Greek translation is a to be verb. In other words, if someone is a sexually immoral person, a covetous person, an idolater, a drunkard, who is the person that... If you think of him, you think of him as a drunkard. Right? He's a hero at drinking. That's a drunkard. Do you see the difference between someone that might be drunk for a night and repented of it and hates it and wants to repent of it, but someone that does it and the sin becomes part of their character in such a way that you can describe that person as that sin. You're not just falling into sexual immorality. You watch porn every three to four days. Now, you're, you're a sexually immoral person. You see, you're not just struggling with it. You are that. And the same thing, these other sins. Does these sins, are you an angry person? Are you a drunkard? Are you a covetous person? Is it part of your character? Those are the people we are to discipline, especially if they're unrepentant, don't seek help, don't want to submit. We are to remove them. And I, I like, this is a good summary of to help us think about what is the criteria which summarizes church discipline. Jonathan Lehman gave this incredibly helpful paragraph. Jonathan Lehman wrote and he says, Whenever the church can no longer affirm another person's salvation as genuine, church discipline is necessary. Whenever the, the church can no longer see another person as a brother, as a, because of their repetitive sin, church discipline is necessary, right? That is what church membership means. Church membership and baptism means we affirm your salvation. We see not just your confession, but your evidence of your salvation. You have died with Christ. You have risen with Christ. You are a new creation. We publicly affirm you as a believer. And church discipline is the exact opposite of that. We can no longer affirm you as a believer. You are living in such a way to show us and the world that you do not belong to Jesus. Therefore, we remove you from among us. Right? That's why we should remove those from membership, even for sins like non-attendance. Not coming to church for an extended period of time, for years. Again, if someone has stayed away for years, can we, with a good conscience, affirm that person as a Christian? No, we have no idea what's going on in that person's lives. And often this, beloved, when someone stays away from church for an extended period of time, there's often other sins 
that the person is covering up. Right? Sometimes things like unforgiveness, bitterness, a selfishness, idolatry, worshipping of other gods. So that's why we should even be willing to discipline people that doesn't come, that, that we, we have reached out to, that says, hey, why aren't you coming? And they don't come. Because we don't see the gathering of the church just as a privilege, but as a covenant duty. It's part of our covenant duty as Christians. And that is the action we are called to do. But what did the Corinthians do instead? And here's the third point. Now we look at the arrogance. Look at the arrogance of the Corinthians. This is the third point of our text. Instead of putting them out, they were arrogant. Look at verse 2. Paul just says it blatantly. And you are arrogant. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. So arrogant can also be translated as puffed up. They were proud. They were proud to be the kind of church that doesn't put people out of the church. That was what they boasted in. They boasted in that. We are free in Christ. His grace covers all our sins. We are free to sin. I think what was behind their thinking was chapter 6 verse 12. Just look at chapter 6 verse 12. Um, Paul actually quotes what they believed and then he corrects them. Right? He says, chapter 6 verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So they were saying, all things are lawful. We are free in Christ. A man can even have his stepmother. That's okay. That's what God's grace does. When Paul wrote, shall we sin that grace may abound? They would have said, absolutely. They were arrogant. They were boastful. And I actually, I think that behind that word arrogant is the reason behind all excuses not to discipline. The basic summary of a church that is unwilling to do this, we can call arrogant. Again, Tim Conway gave a couple of common reasons why people do not want to do this. The first and probably the most common one is, who am I to judge? Well, who am I to judge? Doesn't the Bible say, judge not? I'm not perfect. Who am I to cast the first stone? Now think with me. Paul is writing to a church to do this. And if you know anything about Corinth and Corinthians, you'll know they were a very imperfect church. And he calls that church to put this man out of the church. Imperfect people. People full of sin. Put that man out of the church. Regarding the judge not, remember the context of Matthew 7. Jesus' words means do not judge others by appearances. Don't judge hypocritically. Don't judge while you have a plank in your eye and you want to take out the splinter from your brother's eye. No, first take out the plank, but then take out the splinter too. That text is not about not judging at all, but not judging hypocritically. And you just have to read verse 12 again to see that that argument is not valid. Look at verse 12. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to what? To judge. We don't judge the world. We don't expect the world to be living like Christians. They're the world. But it's those inside. It's those among us. Those who bear the name of brother. That's what we need to judge. So in other words, we have to evaluate one another's lives. We have to be willing and able to look at one another's lives and say, No, brother, not like this. No, sister, not like that. 
You're going down a dark, a sinful road. Repent. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Repent. Come back. That is the kind of judging. Not hypocritically, not self-righteously. Perhaps the best summary is John 7.24. Look at John 7.24. It says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So we're not to make rash judgment. Not first guy you see with a tattoo, that's a Satanist. Right? First guy with a earring must be an unbeliever. Right? So that, that's a kind of judgment. Not judge by appearances. We don't just look at people and just make that comment and make that judgment or, or put the worst possible interpretation on their actions. That's the wrong kind of judging. But what does Jesus say? Judge with right Judgment. If someone is contradicting the gospel by their deeds, Paul said when Peter was out of step from the gospel, he rebuked him in public. Now, I'm not saying we should do that just next time you make an announcement, you start rebuking people. That's not what I'm saying. I think Peter was a leader in the church. Peter was, did a public sin, so it called for a public rebuke. That was the principle there. But that's the point. If someone refuses to submit to the king of kings, we are to judge that person and put them out of the church. That's what we need to do. Listen to Luke 17 verse 3. Just another verse that shows us this. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, ignore it. Don't judge. Lest you... Oh wait, what, what, what Bible are you reading? Now, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you, listen to this, seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive. So, yes, God's grace is unlimited. Seven times a day. We, it, that would, be, would have been an easy thing to say, you're not repentant. This is the seventh time you're doing it today. I'm done forgiving you. But what does Jesus say? No, if he says, says, I repent. We can't judge their hearts. God judges the heart. But if he says, I repent, if he says, I need help, I want to follow Christ, forgive, accept, no church discipline necessary. But if he does not repent, you see, that's the key. If he is not willing to humble himself or herself and confess, church discipline is necessary. So the, the excuse to say, judge not, lest you be judged, is arrogance. It is to ignore what Jesus and what the Holy Spirit inspired. So that's the first excuse. Here's the second one. We are a gracious church. We're too gracious. We're too loving to do this. We're proud of that. It's very close to the heart of what was happening here. In other words, this kind of church looks to God and says, Lord, we are more gracious than you are. We are more merciful than you. We are, more, we are wiser than you. I think we got this situation. You don't have to tell us what to do. We'll handle it from here. Do you see, beloved, that is not humility. That's arrogance. It's arrogance. We must remember this. This is his church. This is not any one of our church. He gets to make the rules. He makes the rules. He makes the boundaries, not we. We don't have that right and that privilege. It's his right and privilege to tell who is in and to tell who is out. Here's a third reason. False humility. False humility. The kind of humility that says, but we are all in the same boat. How can we remove this person? 
It is that same false humility that doesn't want to discipline their children if their dis children disobeys. It's the same false humility that is against capital punishment. It's basically that same false humility that doesn't want anyone to experience the consequences of their actions. And it's false humility because it is not humble. In an attempt to be humble, you proudly ignore what God says. In an attempt to be humble, you reject God's command to remove the evil person from among you. What should we do instead? What does true humility look like? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 gives us what true humility looks like. Ought you not rather to? To mourn. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. It is broken hearted humility that puts people out of the church. Do you see that? Broken hearted humility that says we cannot fellowship with you anymore. It's broken hearted humility that puts its ear close to the word of God and listens to his every command and obeys no matter the consequences of it. So that should be a test of us. If we ever have to get to that point where we'll have to remove someone from our membership, from our church, what is your basic attitude? Is it brokenness and obedience? <laughs> or is it arrogance and pushback and rejection of God's word and criticism of church leadership, if they, especially if they have not been abusive, right? This will be a test for us if we really have absorbed the gospel of grace that changes us from the inside out. Here's a fourth reason why, we sh why some don't practice church discipline. But that's not loving. How could you do this to another person? <laughs> Perhaps there are those who are not even Christians that, that might hear this and think, well, that's why I'm not part of these Christians because they discipline one another. They have boundaries. They have these laws and these rules. That's why I don't want to be part of them. But what the world doesn't know is that this is actually true of all of life. All of life has boundaries. All of life has discipline. And otherwise, the world would be chaotic. To use a very simple illustration, imagine rugby without a yellow and a red card. Imagine that. Imagine if there was no referees. There was any rules. Any, any, any rules can go. Nobody would watch it because it would be unwatchable. It would be perfectly horrible and perfectly chaotic to watch. All right? Church discipline is the church's red card. Right? You're out. You've broken the rules. You are not repentant. Jesus says you're out. With a broken heart, with tears in our eyes, we say that. Imagine a world without laws. Imagine a world without consequence, without um, prison or, or punishment for murder or for, or for things like that or, or, or theft. We all want discipline. We all want boundaries. So can we expect anything less from God's church? That there would be boundaries and lines and rules and laws for us to follow and for us to be in because Christ is our Lord. So don't make this mistake. Even in the church, there are boundaries set by a holy and loving God for us, for our good. And let's close our time together by actually zooming into some of the reasons why it is the most loving thing to discipline. This is the affection. We, you and I need great affection to practice church discipline. Not self-righteousness. 
But here are four reasons why it is loving to discipline. First reason, we discipline for the Lord's sake. Because of our great affection for Jesus himself. Notice the emphasis in verses 4 to 5. Read verse 4 and 5 again. It says, When you are assembled in the name of who? The Lord Jesus. And my spirit is present with the power of who? Our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of who? The Lord. Three times. Lord, Lord, Lord. Why do we do this? Jesus is our Lord. We don't get to make the rules. He is the king. When we assemble in the name of the Lord, what does that mean? Well, that's what we're doing right now. We are assembled in the name of the Lord. When we are assembled like this, we are to do this. And with the power of the Lord, what does that mean? With His power, with His presence, with His authority, we do this. And that's really the meaning of that well-used verse in Matthew 18.20. You know it. Matthew 18.20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So, great verse, often used in prayer meetings. But the context is the two or three who is doing church discipline. I am with you. Dear church, when we all have to do this, don't don't be afraid. I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will stand by you. Because why do we need that promise? Because otherwise we won't do it. We are frail. We are weak. We are fearful. And when, we, when push comes to shelves, we want to shrink back in fear and be cowards and run away. And be arrogant and claim to be more gracious and more loving than God. But his promises are this. Listen, if you do this, I promise you, I'll be with you. I know it will feel wrong. I know you wouldn't want to do this, but I am with you. Trust me. And this is why most churches don't practice church discipline. Jesus is not Lord. Man is Lord. Churches build their lives and their ministries Not upon God's word and his plan, but upon what people want, what people think. Upon what would please people and not what would please God. Some will say, but this doesn't make sense. We will start losing people if we do this. Don't you realize your church won't grow if you do church discipline? Do you see what is the concern for that church? What is the main concern there? Not first, what will please the Lord? What does the Lord want us to do? But the first question the church asks is, How will we grow this church? How can we win people? Even if we have to break God's word to do that, we will do it. A God-centered church is desperate to know only one thing. Lord, what will please you? And we don't care if we are the smallest church in Poch. We don't care about that. Let us be faithful. Let us be true to God's word. Even if everybody rejects Christ, let us follow him in glad obedience and glad submission to him. That's a God-centered church. We want to please God. The man-centered church will grow the church by entertainment, will grow the church by pleasing man. But if we listen to our Lord, if we listen to his lips, he will say, cleanse my bride from my sin. If there's anyone among you That is repetitively disobedient. Put him out. Put her out. So that's the first reason. Our greatest affection is for the Lord himself. 
But ironically, second reason why we do this is because it's also affectionate for the sinner's sake. It's not just for the Lord's sake. Secondly, it's also for the sinner's sake who we are disciplining. This is where verse 5 becomes crucial. Look at verse 5. It says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what this means to deliver this man over to Satan means this, that we hand someone over that Satan may destroy that person's life, might wreck that person's physical life on earth. That word deliver is the same Greek word used in the Greek Old Testament translation in when God said to Satan, for Job, you can have him. Listen to Job 1 verse 12. It says, behold, all that he has is in your hand. That in your hand is the word deliver. God delivered Job into the hands of Satan. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And what did Satan do? He destroyed his life. Everything he had, right? And that's exactly what we do when we do church discipline. The church hands someone over to Satan, delivers someone out of God's kingdom, out of God's church, out of his protection, into the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of the devil, and say, you can have your way with him or her. Now, just on a side note, do you realize something? That that means the church is protection. There is protection to belong to one another. There's protection to come week in and week out, to sing God's praises, to sit under the word of God, to submit to biblical elders. There's, there's God's protection in that. But in church discipline, that protection is removed. Satan, you may have your way with him or her. Now, just to be clear, this is not... This is something the person brought upon him or herself. This is not as if the church now suddenly foists Satan's rule and authority on them, but rather something that the person has brought upon him or herself. We just make that line clear. And why do we do that? Did you notice at the end of verse 5? What is the end result? What is the end goal? What is the end purpose of that? Verse 5 says, So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So we don't do this because we find some kind of a wicked pleasure in people's pain and suffering. No, with mourning and with broken hearts, we deliver someone over to Satan that their lives are so wrecked and so destroyed that their only option is Jesus left. So that God, through Satan, will take away everything that person has as a source of comfort and a source of hope so that their only option is Jesus that they might go to heaven with us. Do you see why it's loving? Tommy, you would say that this is unloving. Is it more loving to allow someone to continue in their sin, to live a comfortable life on earth, to be rich and well off on this earth, and we all pretend that that person is saved, and then that person dies and goes to hell for all of eternity? Or is it more loving... As this text says, to put that person out, to deliver that man to Satan for the physical destruction of their lives, and then that person repents and returns to Christ and comes to Him and have eternal life with us. Which is more loving? If you had to choose between Lazarus and the rich man, who would you choose? Right? The La Lazarus, although he, the, the dogs were licking his sores, he went to heaven. And the rich man had everything and he went to hell. 
It's loving, beloved. It's loving, church, to, to do this for the person's sake. It's loving for the Lord's sake. It's loving for the sinner's sake. And thirdly, this is also loving for the church's sake. For the church's sake. Look at verses 6 to 7. It says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the leaven, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. What does God call as someone that lives in unrepentant sin and still freely associates with us, still talks with us, still has fellowship among us? Leaven. Leaven. What does leaven do? It spreads. It spreads. If you leave it, if you don't deal with it quickly, if you ignore it, if you deal with it in your own wisdom, it will spread to the rest of us. And before we will know it, we will all fall and we will all become like that. Instead, we are to be radical, to cleanse out the old leaven that we may be a new lump as we really are unleavened. That's the gospel. The good news is that Jesus died for us. He died for our sins, not just to forgive us, but to cleanse us and that we might die to sin. Listen to 1 Peter 2 verse 24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. So his death made us a new lump, a pure bride, holy in position and holy in our lives progressively. This is who we are, church. That's who we are. That's what Jesus came to do. He did not die in vain. So if there's any among us who is still part of the old leaven, that's still part of the old person that is not dead in Christ, crucified with him, risen with him, we are to make that line clear. And Paul shows the connection beautifully in verse 7. Look at this. At the end of verse 7 he says, As you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What has made us this new lamb, this new lump? What has cleansed us to make us a holy bride? The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ died and all those who believe in Him are now dead to sin, crucified with Him, risen with Him. No, sin no longer has dominion over that person. We are free in Christ. Christ is our Lord and our Savior. That's what love does. We love one another too much to allow sin to corrupt us. And here's the last reason why we do this. We also do this for the world's sake. For the world's sake. Look at verses 9 to 10. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul makes a distinction here. He says, we are not to do this or dissociate with people that are worldly, that are sinful, that are unbelievers. No, we ought to be there. We ought to have relationships with unbelievers because we have to be light. We have to be salt. But we do this with those among us. We do church discipline with those in the church. Why? To make the line clear between the world and the church. To make the line clear between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. Think with me, if we don't do this, if we refuse to draw that line, if we refuse to put people out of the church, if we blur the line between 
world and church, between God and Satan, between light and darkness, between his kingdom and Satan's kingdom, what will happen to us? Before you will know it, the church will cease to be the church. The church will be full, not of God's children, but with the devil's children. And if you just have a big gathering full of unbelievers, we are perfectly useless. We cannot be light and salt anymore because we have blurred the line. Matthew 5 verse 13 will come true for us when Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Imagine this advert for a church. We are a gracious church. We accept all. All sin allowed here. According to Jesus, we are no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Come and worship with us this Sunday. Right? That church might be popular, but it will be perfectly useless. Perfectly useless. Because there's no distinctiveness anymore. The church has ceased to be the salt and the light of the world that, that the world needs. You see, so when we do church discipline, we do this for the sake of the world that the world might see. The gospel is not just our lip service. The gospel is powerful to save us. The gospel changes our hearts. Beloved, the gospel might, must find its amen in our lives. It must find its power, its, its, its expression through the way we talk, the way we live, the way we talk, the way we love one another. And if we don't have that anymore, the gospel, we rob the gospel of its power. People can hear the good news and look at our lives and say, but we don't, we're not different. We're exactly the same. Yes, come as you are. Yes, come to Christ freely, without price, without money. But come with repentance. Repent of your sins. Humble yourself. Turn away from the idols that you worship, the false gods of your imagination. Cast that into the fire and come to the true and the living God, the King of kings who has died for us to make us a holy bride. Are you willing to obey Him in this church? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are not saved by our works, but by grace through faith in Christ. But we also thank you, Lord, that your death on the cross has not just freed us from the guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin. That we are dead to sin, that you have made us a new lump, a holy bride. Lord, and, and although we struggle, although we fight, although we hate the very sin that we do, Lord, we thank you for even the little bit of progress, the little bit of um, process and progress we make in becoming more like Christ. Lord, I pray that you would make us a holy church. Help us, Lord, not to fear man, not to fear what people think of us, but help us to be faithful, help us to be obedient and to submit to you as our King and our Savior and our Lord. Lord, I pray for Heritage Baptist Church that, Lord, not if it will happen, but when we will need to do this, that you will make us humble, that we would have broken-hearted humility to remove the evil person from among us. And so to be a, a new lump, a, a holy church for you. 
Oh Lord, I pray for perhaps some of us who might be confused still about this text and what it looks like and what we need to do. And I pray that you will help us to clarify that in our fellowship and in the growth group and just in our time together as a church, Lord. And thank you even for that, that we can have that, that we have relationships, that we can study your word together. And I pray that we would use that, Lord. And, and Lord, help us as well, as, even as believers, as Christians, to fear and to be quick to repent, to be quick to lay down our sin so that we might follow you until the end. We pray this, Lord, for your name's sake. Amen.